0: We're right now in the midst of the holiday of Sukkos, and I want to discuss a little bit of the idea of the central mitzvah of the holiday, which is to sit in a sukkah. In fact, that's the name of the holiday, the is referring to the special sukkos that we had uh, during the times of the Exodus, and that we reenact every year, five days after Yom Kippur. So what's the meaning behind this mitzvah, and what does it mean for us, and how could we... Utilize it and maximize its opportunities. So, I want to start with a Gemara, a Talmud in the book of Avodah Zarah. This is on 2a. And the Gemara starts by talking, it's a very futuristic Gemara. And the Gemara discusses what's going to be sometime in the future when it's time to give reward and punishment for the righteous and the wicked. And the Almighty is going to take a Torah scroll and going to announce whoever studied Torah should come and get the reward. So what's going to happen? Of course, the Jewish people are going to be there. But all the nations of the world are going to come and try to state their claim on Torah and the resulting reward. And there's a very long more back and forth how each nation is going to try to justify their right uh, to have a portion in Olamaba in the world to come, as a result of their actions. And they might as have to negotiate with them back and forth. Very, very long dialogue here, narrative in the Gemara, of what's going to be uh, in, this, in, this, in this futuristic time. Either way, the conclusion of the Gemara is that all the nations are going to be rebutted, everyone is going to uh, try to make the claim that they, everything they did was for Torah, when the reality wasn't for Torah, and then they're going to have one Hail Mary at the end here, And pardon the reference, of just give us one mitzvah, give us one opportunity, give us one option to maybe earn a portion in Olam And the Umayyad is going to say, okay, fine, I'll give you an option. I have an easy mitzvah that you could do, and it's called Sukkah. Go do the mitzvah. It's almost as if the people are, are so desperate for an opportunity to have olam that the Almighty is going to suspend the rules and say, fine, fine, I'll give you one mitzvah that you could do, it's the mitzvah of sukkah, and if you do that, you fulfill that properly, maybe indeed you'll have a portion in olam And right away, everyone's going to be so excited, they're going to go run to Home Depot, and build a sukkah on top of the roof, and the Almighty is going to make it so hot, and uh, so unbearable that everyone's going to be sitting in the sukkah and starting to sweat and getting all uncomfortable that they're going to be so frustrated with this mitzvah that they're going to get out of the sukkah and give it a kick and go back into the climate-controlled houses. And the Ma'am going to say, you see, these people, they don't like mitzvahs. I gave them a mitzvah. Not only do they not fulfill it, but they left in disdain and disgust. That's the Gemara. So I think it's interesting to note that when the Almighty decided to allow the non-Jews, the non-Jewish nations in the future, to have one opportunity, one mitzvah to demonstrate their uh, their um, to demonstrate that, that they are deserving of Olam ba the one mitzvah that they're going to choose is Sotra. So, the truth is, the Gemara addresses that, and the Gemara says that it's an easy mitzvah. It's an easy mitzvah. It doesn't cost so much money. If I, you know, if they might have said, yeah, you got to give 10% of the money to charity, well, that's expensive. you got to write a Torah scroll. It costs $50,000 to do that. And there's one mitzvah that's cheap. That's that's Sotra. But the truth is, there's a lot of mitzvahs that are cheap. You know, you should go visit the sick. How much does it cost to visit the sick? Maybe it's a it's a trip to the hospital to visit the sick. That's a mitzvah in the Torah, to, to, you know, to, to, uh, to study Torah. That's the greatest mitzvah out there. And that's not so expensive. So there's something important, something different about this mitzvah of sukkah that it is deservedly the litmus test to determine the eligibility of people for olam So I want to try to crack the code of what is so special about this mitzvah, and I think it's not just relevant in the context of this particular Talmudic narrative, I think it's also relevant for us. You know, we are right now sitting in a sukkah. That's the holiday. There's seven days that we leave our permanent dwelling and move to the temporary domain of the sukkah. So if we understood the power behind this mitzvah, I think it would make our celebration, our fulfillment of this mitzvah, ever more rewarding. So I want to try to analyze the mitzvah of Sukkah. Let's start with mitzvahs in general. We know, we're told in the Talmud, that there's 248 mitzvahs corresponding to 240 limbs and organs of a person. So if you look at a person, you see there's 248 limbs, and each limb has a mitzvah that is related to it. That's what the Talmud says in the Book of Macros that same Talmud says that you could distill all the mitzvahs down to one core idea, and that is faith. Really, it's 248 mitzvahs, and they're all different behaviorisms and different times of the year, and there's Shabbos, and there's holidays, and there's tefillin, etc. But the underlying, underpinning core essence of every mitzvah is is faith in God. Every mitzvah is an expression of faith, and... There's 248 mitzvahs slash limbs and organs, because there's 248 different acts of faith. What's the idea? The idea is, for someone to have a spiritual completion, they need to create a spiritual replica of themselves. Just like the human body is comprised of 248 limbs, if we want to create a spiritual replica of the human body, then we need to have 248 spiritual limbs. But what's a spiritual limb? A spiritual limb is a mitzvah. Thus, when someone does all 248 mitzvahs, they create a perfect avatar, a spiritual avatar of themselves, and that who's the, that is who they are spiritually. What happens? Someone dies. What happens to them? Well their physical iteration ceases to work, and they take the body, it starts decomposing right away, put it in a box, put it in the ground, and now it's food for maggots. That's their physical 248. But their spiritual 248 lives on to the degree that they indeed created that spiritual counterpart with their mitzvos. So indeed, each mitzvah, it's not just, we typically think of mitzvahs as just a random collection of godly instructions. The truth is, mitzvahs are perfectly designed to create a spiritual entity that perfectly mirrors who we are here. To create who we are in a spiritual World. And that's, of course, one of the reasons, as a side note, why we can't neglect even a small mitzvah. You know, we have limbs that aren't as important as our heart or our liver, etc. We have a more important limbs and we have a hierarchy of, of what's really so important and what's not so important. But you talk to people and they say, yeah, maybe my, uh, my ring toe on my left foot is not so important. But I'm still not willing to give it up. I'm still not willing to have you, God forbid, sever it off my foot. Well, what do you mean? It's not so important. Yes, it's not so important, but it's part of me. Every mitzvah is part of me in a spiritual context, that every mitzvah is creating this identity, this spiritual identity, that's who I am. So I cannot neglect a single mitzvah, because neglecting a mitzvah is neglecting part of myself. So what happens? A person does all 248 mitzvahs, and they create all 248 limbs, they get to the spiritual world, their physical body is being consumed by maggots. So what, what are they? They are what they created with their mitzvot. They get to olam If they're complete, if they're perfect, if they, conti- they, you know, if they have all 248 spiritual organs and limbs, then in olam the spiritual world, they're complete. If they neglected some mitzvot, well, unfortunately, they're not complete. If they neglected so many mitzvahs or crucial mitzvahs that, uh, that someone cannot live without their corresponding organs, well, then they have no portion in Olam Haba. So that's the idea of mitzvahs in general. Mitzvahs are our opportunity to create our spiritual selves. Now, as such, for someone to gain entry to Olam Haba, well, you need to do all 248 mitzvahs. There's no shortcuts, right? You need 248 spiritual limbs. And there's 248 ways to get that. One mitzvah per limb. The truth is, the Talmud, and back to the book of Avod HaZarah, it does discuss this notion that it's possible to do this 248 activities all in one. How so? So the Gemara brings three stories. One and Avodah Zarah 10b, one on Avodah Zarah 17a, and one on Avodah Zarah 18a. In each one of these three stories, we find people that may have initially been sinners. Their whole lives, they're sinners. But, three different stories, of course, I don't want to get uh, into the details of the stories, but each one of them had a momentous inspiration, and they made a decision to commit not just themselves on a more minor level, but the entirety of themselves to God. And they all did something, an act of martyrdom, that resulted in their death. And as a result, the the Batkol, which is a low-level prophecy, announced that these people, they merited to achieve Olam in one hour, in one minute, with one act. Wait a minute, didn't you just tell us that you need two, a minimum of 248 acts to get to olam unscathed? The answer is correct. Normally, the process that we use to get olam is mitzvah by mitzvah, building brick by brick, limb by limb, organ by organ, until you have all 248 and you have olam What these people did, they didn't do limb by limb, organ by organ, they did all 248 at once. Three people, three episodes, but it demonstrates a concept. And the concept is that it's somehow possible to have a spiritual shortcut to 248. To not say, you know, do one at a time, do all 248 at once. Now, what does Aragamorah say? Aragamorah says that the Almighty tells the non-Jews, I have one mitzvah that if you fulfill this mitzvah properly, you'll merit olam haba. Seemingly, this too is a method by which all 248 mitzvahs converge into one, and via observance of one mitzvah, you get olam haba. How so? It's interesting that we're told in Jewish sources that there's only a few mitzvos that incorporate the entirety of one's body. And one of them is a sukkah. You sit in a sukkah. Well, which part of you? Is it your hands? Is it your heart? Is it your arms? Is it your brain? No! It's all 248 limbs of your body are all in the sukkah simultaneously. So I always thought of that idea to be trivia, right? It's, it's something which is interesting. Yeah, there's some mitzvahs that you do with your whole body. So what? But I think in this context of of observance of mitzvahs and it creating something special out of the resulting spiritual power of a mitzvah, and now we're told that sukkah, the mitzvah of sukkah, is mitzvah you do with all 248 limbs, well now it makes a lot of sense, or at least the idea is coming a little bit into focus. If you do one mitzvah, but you do it not just with one organ, you do it with all 248 organs, well maybe it can create, with one mitzvah, the result of 248 mitzvahs in one. But it still doesn't really explain what Sukkot is all about. What about Sukkah gives us this power that it allows a person, or at least potentially, allows a person to achieve everything that results from all the mitzvahs with observance of this one. So I want suggest an idea. How the mitzvah of Sukkah is so foundational, and so core to Jewish life that it really has everything in it uh, all wrapped into one. So we're told in Jewish sources of the more mystical variety that... A sukkah is like the shade of faith. We know a sukkah has shade on top. It's got the shach on top. And the resulting shade, that's tzila de mehemnusa. That's shade of faith. Now, that should ring a bell. It's shade of faith, and every mitzvah is an act of faith. So normally you have to do 240 eight mitzvahs of faith to get a lama. Here, a Godfather offer is extended to the Gentiles to do one mitzvah, to sit in the shade of faith, a mitzvah that incorporates all 248 limbs of a person as at once, and thereby skip the tedious and arduous process of collecting. Mitzvahs one at a time. There's something that intimately links the mitzvah of Sukkah with the idea of faith. What's that? This is all that was a, was an introduction. Now here's what we start, just to impress upon us the value and the power of the holiday, and to 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 have um, maybe a more meaningful experience next time we sit in a Sukkah. So. The Talmud tells us, the very first page of the Talmud in the Book of Sukkah really encapsulates the idea of a sukkah. It says like this, we have to sit in a sukkah for seven days. The Torah tells us, leave, for seven days you should leave your permanent dwelling and you should move into a temporary dwelling. We're told, for seven days we have to leave our permanent home our climate-controlled home and move into a hut, a primitive hut, for seven days. Now, if you actually look at a picture of a sukkah and you Google pictures from substandard living of, I don't know, tribes in Africa, in third world countries, you'll find that they actually don't look that dissimilar. We're told you have a big... Majestic home. It's got all the amenities of modern living. And you have to leave that and go move into a little hut and live in a substandard or at least third world uh, way of living. What's that message? I want to theorize that this really takes us to the core idea of, of Jewish life and of course the core idea of faith. The Mishnah tells us, this world is like a corridor before the next world. Prepare yourself in the corridor so that you may enter the palace. We are dropped into this world without really much of an instruction manual, with the exception of Torah. But we're thrown in the world and we have zero recollection of our spiritual have, we don't intimately, or at least on a sensory level, connect with our soul, and we're dropped into this world. And we live, and we live, some people live a longer life, but on average Americans live between 70 and 80 years, and then they die, and that's it. That's what we know from living in this world. The Torah tells us that this world is not really an end destination unto its own. It's a corridor, it's a pathway, it's a passageway that we're going to some other world that we call olam which means the next world. And here, it's not a world of of, of, of an ultimate destination. Rather, it's a place to prepare for olam So that would be great. The problem is that we have what's called a Ra, an evil inclination. And the goal of the evil inclination is to give us a, a conflicting perspective on life. Whereas the Torah tells us, this world, is, it's, it's only a passageway, it's only a corridor before the next world, which is the real world. The Yetzirah gives an entirely different message. He tells us, this world is the only world you've got. Don't think about what's going to happen after you die, because that's not relevant to you. Now your goal is, to better your state, your status, in this corridor. Don't think about anything beyond this corridor, this world. That's what the Yetzirah tells us. So, in life, we're conflicted. On one hand, logically we know, everyone knows this, that we're going to die. We haven't met yet the person that lives forever. We know we're going to die. I haven't met yet... Someone who, maybe you'll live to 110. We can already fathom people living to 120. Let's assume 150 years. But either way, we're just postponing the inevitable and that we're going to die. So logically, we know that whatever investment we do into our status here, well, it has a shelf life. It has a shelf life, and we're rapidly heading towards obsolescence. We're investing in this world in this iteration of our existence, and we know that we're swiftly reaching the end point, and we can't undo that. We, that's what we know. But our Yitzhak doesn't want us to make that calculation. Our Yitzhak wants us to just not ask those kinds of questions. Comes along to the Torah and tells us, this world's a corridor for the next world. Your job in the corridor is to prepare for the palace. Now, how do we do that? How do we prepare for Lama Mitzvahs! Mitzvahs, like we said, a mitzvah is an act of faith that's designed to reorient our thinking regarding this matter. You do a mitzvah. Why do you do a mitzvah? You do a mitzvah because the Almighty tells you to do a mitzvah. Not only that, because a mitzvah is tending to your spiritual half, to your soul, to the part of you that lives beyond your your, your, your physical death. That's all amabah. That's what you're preparing for. Thus, the mitzvah, in essence, is telling us that this world, the world that we're in today with our physical bodies, it's a temporary world. We're not here to stay. We're traveling to our ultimate destination. So, what happens when you're traveling when someone traveling when someone travels well then their standards are dropped. their standards are relaxed. you know I often say that my couch and my bed are more comfortable than the fanciest five star first class cabin in the world it's fancier it's more comfortable you have more leg room it's nicer it's, you' know, there's just there's so much room to walk around. So how come people don't pay me $6,000 to crash on my couch every night? Why not? It's more comfortable than... They, they, those same people would pay for first-class ticket, which is not as comfortable overnight. What's the difference? The difference is, when you're traveling, your standards are relaxed. If you're in transit, you know you, you have much lower standards. You're okay. You know it's, it's remarkable. People, because they want to get to some place... They don't mind being in a little metal cylinder with hundreds of, of total strangers sitting in such close proximity that they could smell their body odor, odor, taking a small little satchel, small little package, having to put it with everyone else, having to undergo the humiliation of the security in American airports, eating terrible food by, you know, for, Sure, the kosher food, of course. But it, it's just a miserable life. And why do we all do it? You'll pay money for it. The answer is when you're thinking about your destination, you'll put up with a lot. It's not so important. Now you're temporary. You're trying to get towards someplace. You, you have your eye on the goal on the destination. If you have the eye, your eye on the destination, well, then you're okay with a lot less. And indeed, you know, everything else is going to hinder your progress to your journey. There's a great story with the Chavetz Chaim. He met a wealthy traveling businessman. So someone came, this this person, this wealthy person was traveling in Radin. And he came to his house, to the Chavetz Chaim's house. Chavetz Chaim was the great leader of the Jewish community in the 19th and early 20th century. And he came to visit him. This wealthy businessman came to the Chafetz Chaim and he got this house. It was a little hovel. And he walked inside. And he couldn't imagine that someone would live in such decrepit conditions. Where's the furniture? The couch got you know, maybe some patches all over it. Very sparsely furnished house. So he asked the Chavetz Chaim, where's your furniture? So the Chavetz Chaim asked him, where's your furniture? He says, my furniture. What do you mean? My furniture, they're in my penthouse in Vienna. So he says, oh, "So, well, why don't you have them here?" It says, "What do you mean? Here I'm traveling. I don't. know Who brings their furniture when they're traveling?" It says the "Oh, I'm also traveling. My furniture is in my permanent home. Here is my temporary home." This is a powerful, foundational lesson of life. That is that what we are over here in this world that we're into. All of us are in right now. We really view that as we're traveling. We're traveling. It's not, our, it's not our ultimate home. So we have a permanent home. But is it really permanent? Don't we know that we're not going to live forever? You know, I'm I'm almost 30 years old. So let's I live for another 100 years. 100 years is a lot of time. But it's still temporary. It's, still, right? it's not permanent. It's not permanent. So even my permanent home, it's just... More temporary. It's a longer journey. Maybe it's not a flight across the Atlantic. Maybe it's a it's a it's a it's a trip in a ship across the Atlantic. But it's still a trip. It's still still temporary. Now the Eitz dupes us with his distortionary tactics into making the mistake of thinking that our permanent home is really permanent. But the truth is, logically and certainly the Torah's perspective is that. Yes, it may be slightly more permanent than the sukkah that we have outside, but it's just varying degrees of temporality. This is permanent, excuse me, this is temporary, the sukkah that we're in, the house is also temporary. And The truth is we're all going to die, and what happens when we die? Then, what is exposed? Our soul, which is indeed permanent, that's exposed. Thus, what's really striking and remarkable, according to this, is that we have a tendency of focusing and investing in our temporary self, but neglecting our permanent self. Man is a fusion of a temporary body and a permanent soul. Problem is, we're not aware of it. Of course, that's the Yetzirah. But... From the Torah's perspective, and certainly logically it makes sense to us, our body and our physical iteration, well that's temporary. Our soul is permanent. Yet, we have a tendency to ignore our soul, to ignore our actual permanent iteration in favor of investing exclusively in our temporary existence. And that is really devastating when you think about it, you know. I, I, to invest in a temporary venture is, on its own, questionable. I, I like to say this example. Imagine, you know, now we have climate change. So in some places in the world, the, the, the seas are expanding, and therefore the beaches are getting smaller. So imagine someone gave, comes in with you an offer. It says, oh, I have this beachfront property. You can build a beautiful summer home, beautiful vacation home. It's the nicest beach, pristine water, the best sand, everything. So you say, it sounds like a great idea. And you know what? It is a great idea. Problem is, doesn't, this is not mentioned. Every, every, every year, the water, the tides, get a few feet closer. And Within a couple of years, your house is actually underwater. You can build a nice, beautiful home but all it will be is a nice coral reef for some fishies to come swim in your game room, in your basement. That's what's going to happen. So does it make sense for someone to invest lots of money to build a house? Well, they'll have a beautiful vacation. home. Yes, for five years, six years, maybe seven. Maybe you could push it to ten years. But as a, afterwards, it's, it's underwater. It's totally underwater. Well, it'll be insane to make that investment. But there's more. Let's say someone says hmm, I'm going to make that investment anyhow. I'm going to invest in a temporary dwelling. I'm going to invest in it. But wouldn't it be asinine and preposterous for someone to say, I'll invest in the temporary, but I'll neglect the permanent? Imagine. You know, today, people, they like to put orthodontal orthodontics, they go to the orthodontist and they get braces. They straighten their teeth. I have never seen anyone that puts braces on baby teeth. I've never seen it. Baby teeth, I guess in general, come out a little bit straighter than permanent teeth for whatever reason. But I've never seen a a four-year-old or a five-year-old with crooked baby teeth that that the parents or Someone decided to put on braces on them. I've never seen that before. But I can imagine sometime in the future that maybe we'll become a little bit more vain and people would start putting braces on baby teeth. I can imagine that happening. Fine. But it would be absurd to put braces on baby teeth and not put them on permanent teeth. If you're going to invest... In something temporary, you should surely invest in something permanent. But the truth is that our even our permanent teeth aren't so permanent, but it's more permanent. But our soul, well, that's entirely permanent. And we could go through life investing and investing and investing in the temporary and neglecting the permanent. And I think this is the lesson of the holiday. The lesson of the holiday of... Circus. It's really a seven-day exercise of leaving our permanent home, moving out of our permanent dwelling, and moving in to temporary dwelling. Why would someone do that? Why would someone downgrade their standard of living? It doesn't make any sense. And the truth is that according to the halacha, Ideally, we should be sleeping in the circle. everything you do in your house. We should, move, we should be moving our computers and our all the amenities of our home should really be moving, moved into our circle. We should really live in our circle the same way we live in our house. Now, what's the, what's the point? The, the lesson is is that it reminds us that we have to further not only our temporary life, but our permanent life as well. And the truth is, this could be a little bit disheartening. This whole notion that a lot of what we're doing in our life is an exercise in futility, it could be a little bit disturbing. It's a little bit unsettling to think about the fact that we are investing so much in our temporary lives. That, indeed... Is maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's a good lesson to have. But it is a little bit unsettling. But I think that, I, you know, I, I want to look at it on the positive sense. I think it's inspiring and heartwarming and refreshing that our soul and our consciousness, well, that, that lives forever. That is permanent. What a legacy. How inspiring is it to know that when someone dies, they're not over and done with? It's not just a race to the finish line. We're going to fall off the cliff and just be forgotten, and black out, nothing. We can create an eternal legacy. We can't live forever with the power of our soul. But that is dependent. All that hinges on our capacity to actually prepare in the temporary world for the permanent world. If we don't prepare in the corridor, we won't be ready when it, the, the time arrives for for entering for entering the palace. The truth is, we have a house, we have a sukkah, it's just different grades of temporality. One maybe is our house for seven days, one is our house for 70 years, but both of them are temporary. However, we have an indestructible soul you can maybe, God forbid, shoot a Jew, but you cannot vanquish his spirits. No matter how gory or grisly someone's death is, their soul lives on. So we're sitting in a temporary dwelling, and we remind ourselves that our lives over here are also temporary, but our soul is not temporary. We have one temporary entity, one permanent entity, and it's prudent for us to invest as much as we can in our permanent and view our temporary entity in the proper perspective to ensure that it doesn't jeopardize our permanent life as well. As such, perhaps we can say that the sukkah does represent a core value of Judaism. Really, what's this is what it's all about. This is the goal of all of them. It says, this is what faith is. Faith is the recognition of God and, and its implications for our life and the awareness of the soul and awareness of afterlife and living with that as a guiding light. Well, that's what faith is. Thus, we can say that, yes, sitting in a temporary existence here, well, that you know, that, that's an act of faith. To recognize that your existence here, is, is an, it, you know, that, that's an act, act of faith. What happens? The Imari says to the Gentiles, you want olam ba Fulfill the mitzvah of, of sukkah. So, they get, into the, they get into the sukkah, and what happens? It's hot. You know, from Houston, Texas, where we are right now, it's not so hard to imagine being in a hot sukkah. It gets ninety degrees, maybe even hotter sometimes in circus. The sun's beating down on you, and while you're supposed to have the schach that gives you shade, there's still some elements of sun that are able to permeate their way through, and it's uncomfortable. And you're getting hot, and you're getting irritable. But the truth is, we realize that it's temporary. We're traveling. Sometimes when you travel, it's not the most comfortable. It's not the most comfortable circumstances. You know, we, our family, we drive to Canada every year in the summer. But think about that. You're in a minivan with a family. Thank thank God we have a big, beautiful family. But to travel in a minivan 1,700 miles to Canada, that's insane. You're, You're suffering. But in your head you're thinking... 1,700 miles, but now it's 1,600 miles, and now it's 1,500 miles, and, and we're moving, and we're, we're traveling, we're getting there. It's not going to be forever. This this is temporary. If it's temporary, well, then you can bear it. If, to live like that forever? Oh, gosh, that would be difficult. But if it's just temporary, well, then, then you could be okay with that. So the Gentiles are given an opportunity, they're given an opportunity to go to the sukkah. And to go demonstrate that this world is temporary, by demonstrating this world is temporary, they're able to stamp their golden ticket to Olam and they get there. And you know what? It gets a little uncomfortable. And they get out, and they kick the sucker. They could not bear the notion that this world is temporary. They couldn't handle it. They, they, to them, they didn't realize that they were traveling. They thought that this is the way it's always going to be. They couldn't wrap their heads around the notion that there's a, that this is a temporary life, a temporary existence. To them, if, if, if it's permanent, well, how could you manage? Can you imagine living outside the whole year in the elements? No one can imagine that. If it's seven days or 70 years in our proverbial example of a temporary life, well, okay, you could put up with a lot more they were so influenced by the Yetzirah's ideology that this world is permanent, that the difficulty, the suffering, was too much to bear. They couldn't handle it. They got out. They could the center. And you know what? As a result, if, if you're not able to view this world as temporary, if you only look at this world as permanent, what's going to be when you actually get to the permanent world? You've already had your permanent world. You've committed to the notion that the temporary world, our world, is permanent. You weren't living. You didn't prepare yourself in the temporary world for the permanent world. Well, you get to the permanent world and you have no portion. So it's interesting what the holiday is and what the implications are. And we could see how it has such far-reaching consequences. And I was thinking, just to conclude here, that the truth is we have another holiday which is precisely six months after Sukkot, so and that's the holiday of Passover. And Passover also shares the same lesson. The mitzvah of Passover, of course, is the mitzvah of matzah. What's matzah? Matzah is the most basic food you could possibly imagine. Flour, water, and nothing else. If you add yeast to the matzah concoction, what do you have? You have chametz. You cannot have that on on Passover. Says the Talmud. The Yetzerah, the nickname for the Yetzerah, Saar Shabi Issa, yeast in the bread. What the Yetzerah does, he takes a temporary life and turns it into something permanent. He takes a means and turns it into an end. He takes a passageway and turns it into a destination. How so? He takes the matzah, which is you unique, you need to have when you're traveling. When you're going along this corridor to Olam Ba, you need to have food. Or else you'll, you won't survive. But he, the Yetzirah injects the yeast into the bread. He turns the flat and uninspiring matzah into the fluffy and delectable and exciting bread. And the difference between matzah and bread is that matzah is that's temporary food. That's food that you would only exist, that you would only ingest if you wanted its sustenance and nutrition. That's the only reason why you would do that. Well, if if you're here temporary, if you're here with the eye on the destination, then you're okay with airplane food. It's airplane food. You just need the food to get to your destination. What happens? He says, no, you have to have gourmet food. You have to have the best kind of food in the world. Why? Because, well, you're not going to eat airplane food in your house. I don't know, people do that, maybe. I don't know. I'm sure there's someone who does that, who takes the airplane food and brings it home. Maybe. But for most of us, well, now we're in our permanent home, not going to eat the airplane food. Well, but if you really, if life is really this airplane travel to Ulama you have to remember that. You have to every once in a while have a seven-day holiday where all you're eating is airplane food. And they have another seven-day seven, seven day holiday exactly half a year later where you're moving into a temporary hut. And thus, really, these two holidays are bookends of the year to keep you, keep us in focus, to keep us remembering what life is really all about. And if nothing else works, says the Talmud, you got to remember that we're temporary. We're not going to live forever. Clearly, every. And the truth is, everyone wants everyone, everyone to ask themselves: Do you know anyone that's lived forever? No, it hasn't happened yet. We're all going to die. Thinking about our own death that reminds us of our temporality. When you remember your temporality, hopefully, hopefully, you'll think: How do I invest in my permanent self, in my soul? How do I access greatness, not just over here in my temporary existence, but in my permanent? existence as well. That's what we're doing with the Sukkah. And the hope is that we can take this secret of Sukkah that we unlocked from the Talmud and benefit from ourselves. Of course, this futuristic narrative the Talmud tells us is really relevant to us. When we're sitting on a circle, we have to realize what we're doing, what an opportunity we have to reframe our perspective and our values and our priorities in this world and to ensure that we view this world as a corridor before the next world and reap all the benefits that result.